Good morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning, even if it's virtually. Um, as Pastor Jeremiah said earlier, we long to be together in, in person. We long to be the gathered church in the way that the Bible expresses that. I'm Mark Schladorn. I'm an elder here at Cross Point Coast, and this morning we're going to be looking into Psalm 146 as we examine the attribute of God that is justice. Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever, your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. During the past few weeks, our news feeds and television shows have been filled with voices calling out for justice. In the past few years, our country has been having a discussion about social justice as it pertains to racial and gender issues. All parties involved in those discussions cry out for some form of justice. But what that form of justice should look like remains in dispute. What is justice? What does justice look like? Justice has been defined as the quality of being just, fairness, a principle of moral rightness, decency, conformity to moral rightness, some kind of moral code, righteousness. A secondary definition is simply judge. Descriptions of God as judge inform the pages of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Early on, we find Abraham interceding on behalf of sin-saturated Sodom. When the Lord announces his intentions to destroy the city, Abraham responds with, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Psalm 75 tells us it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. And in Hebrews 12, we find God described as the judge of all. Divine judgment is indisputable, and Scripture reveals God operating as judge. God judges Adam and Eve. He passes judgment in the world at the time of Noah. He judges Pharaoh in Egypt during the time of Hebrew slavery, and then he judges those very slaves after the exodus as they turn from him and bow before a golden calf. He judges priests, prophets, and kings, and at separate times he judges the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel, sending each into exile, one permanently and one temporarily. 
But that's all Old Testament judgment. Some might argue that the New Testament provides a different view of justice. A closer look, however, reveals God judging the Jews for rejecting the Messiah. And as we recently saw in our study of Acts, God judges Ananias and Sapphira for lying, and he judges Herod for his pride. While what is justice and what does justice look like are culturally significant queries, they only hint at the larger question we should be asking. During the past few weeks, we've been preaching through a sermon series titled The God We Can Know, designed to reveal the attributes of God based on questions found in the Westminster Shorter, Shorter Catechism. So far, we've examined the being of God, the holiness of God, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. This morning, we'll examine the justice of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, and we thank you that in your loving kindness and perfect wisdom, you have crafted your word to give us a glimpse into not only your holiness and justice, but also into your mercy and grace. We thank you for your son, Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality equality with God to be a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit, by whom your love has been poured into our hearts. And finally, we ask that as we open your word this morning, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear so that we might better understand the passage that it might also bring comfort to us and glory to you as we seek to follow you and become salt and light to those around us. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. If you're taking notes, there are four things that we're going to consider this morning. First, God is justice, followed by the implications of God as justice, a life of justice and living a life of justice before God. God is justice, the implication of God is justice, a life of justice, and living a life of justice before God. Back in Genesis, God introduces himself to Moses as I am. He is declaring his self-existence. This is especially helpful in examining the attributes of God. So looking back through this sermon series, it would be accurate to say God personifies or embodies each of his attributes. There's no distinction between God and his attributes as there is for us and our attributes. For example, a person can be wise, just, and powerful, but the person is not identical with wisdom, justice, and power. Each of these parts contribute to some aspect of the person, and each attribute is distinct from what the person is as a whole. We depend on qualities to be who we are, but that's not how it is with God and his attributes. God doesn't possess wisdom, power, and justice as attributes distinct from his being God. God simply is, I am, the wisdom by which he is wise the power by which he is powerful, and the justice by which he is righteous. And it's the same with all of his attributes. So the primary question we need to ask this morning is not what is justice, but rather who is justice. 
As we've heard in previous sermons, God is other in that he is creator and not a created being. And as creator, he has ownership of his creation. And while that idea might make you uncomfortable, the fact is God is free to act on you in any way that he pleases because you are an object of his creation. God applies his justice as he sees fit, according to his absolute wisdom. He is the embodiment of justice. Think of it this way. Everything in the universe is good to the degree that it conforms to the nature of God and evil as it fails to conform to the nature of God. Let me say that one more time. Everything in the universe is good to the degree that it conforms to the nature of God and evil as it fails to conform to the nature of God. Justice is one of God's communicable attributes because we can catch glimpses of his justice in what has been revealed to us through his establishment of governments throughout history. Our legal offices, for example, are filled with volumes of case law on which both prosecuting and defense attorneys build arguments. Those laws are passed down from previous years, decades, and even centuries. Lawyers present their cases and judges decide the outcomes based on the effectiveness of arguments as they conform to the law. It's not so with God's justice. He's the absolute authority. He's the lawgiver. He's the judge. He delivered his law to Moses on Mount Sinai so that we would know his righteousness. It should perhaps come as no surprise that the words justice and righteousness are often used interchangeably in Scripture, where we find that justice is simply an attribute of God, nothing more. When God acts justly, he's not doing it to conform to an independent criterion, but simply because he's acting like himself in a given situation. A.W. Tozer puts it this way, The truth is, there is not and never can be anything outside of the nature of God which can move him the least in the least degree. All God's reasons come from within his, un, his uncreated being. Nothing has entered the being of God from eternity. Nothing has been removed. Nothing has been changed. God shows no partiality, so everyone will receive a fair shake. A righteous judge can't be influenced by lies, bribes, politics, unworthy witnesses, and disputable circumstantial evidence. The psalmists present God as an all-powerful ruler, high and lifted up, reigning in equity. And also as the one who will see to it that the moral quality or moral equity ultimately will prevail. A judge's duty is to ascertain the facts of a case. And that's a difficult assignment at best for any human being to consider. Another of God's attributes, omniscience, makes him uniquely qualified to pronounce judgment because God is all-knowing. The Bible presents him as a heart-searching fact-finder. No detail escapes his notice. Every motive is exposed. God alone knows us even better than we know ourselves and judges us as we really are. Because another of God's attributes is that he's all-powerful, he alone has the authority not only to render the verdict, but the authority to pass sentence as well. 
all of the judicial functions are perfectly realized in God. What are the implications of God as justice? We read in Exodus that all those functions will be executed with absolute righteousness because God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. The first part of that passage gives us reason to celebrate God's justice. Mercy and grace produce abundant joy. But the latter part should make us uneasy because he will by no means clear the guilty. Now, surely that must mean those who are guilty as the big stuff, such crimes as murder, rape, robbery. We all agree that it's right for God to punish those injustices. But God's definition of sin is not nearly so limited. The ultimate injustice we have committed is the injustice against our Creator, treason against our King. The prophet Daniel said God has sent his people into exile because of the treachery they have committed against him. In Psalm 51, King David reaches the same conclusion when during his confession of stealing a man's wife and then murdering that same man in an attempt to cover up his crime, he cries out, against you, O Lord, against God alone have I sinned. As a response, God executes retributive justice, which calls for the guilty to receive just punishment. Retribution is an inescapable fact. Sooner or later, everyone gets what they deserve. Deep down, we all know this to be true, to be morally right. What kind of a God would ignore the difference between right and wrong, between good and evil? If you're looking for proof that God is a perfect being, here it is. God has promised to judge the world and everyone, regardless of status, will be held accountable. And that sets up a problem. God's accountability standard is impossibly high. The Ten Commandments say you shall not murder or commit adultery. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says you're angry at your brother, it's the same as murder. And if you look at another with lustful intent, you're guilty of adultery. You should be punished. I should be punished. That's the bad news of the gospel, but consider how Jesus introduced himself in his first recorded sermon in Luke 4. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, what's striking is that in the Isaiah 61 passage that Jesus is reading, the words to proclaim the Lord's favor are followed by, and the day of the vengeance of our God. Why did Jesus stop reading in the middle of a sentence and sit down? Well, we can, we can be sure it's not because Jesus didn't want to be offensive. Most of what Jesus preached was offensive. Paul tells us the cross itself is offensive. 
Now, Jesus' reading of Isaiah is accurate because it announces his ministry because at that time he didn't come to bring God's vengeance. He came to bear God's vengeance, to stand in for us. God's judgment came down on him. This answers a question that begs to be asked. If God's justice is perfect in both prosecution and execution, how can he possibly spare the unrighteous? The simple answer is this, because he's God. He embodies all of his attributes. He is never at conflict with himself. Only Christ's work on the cross makes it possible for God's justice to be satisfied when he spares a sinner. The penalty for our injustice toward God was paid when Jesus died on a cross as a substitute for those who are called to himself. Those people receive God's mercy instead of his condemnation. This is known as God's redemptive justice. And we find it further realized in 1 John, where we read, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because of God's redemptive justice, we who are in Christ are free to celebrate rather than fear all of the aspects of God's righteousness because Jesus has borne the retribution we deserve. Only after realizing God's grace can we consider how we might live a life of justice in light of the mercies he has shown us. And that looks a lot like Psalm 146. Here we find the psalmist praising adoring God for being the author of justice. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will sing praises to God while I have my being. He then contrasts the worship of God's eternal power with the transience of being human. Don't trust in earthly leaders, he says, because they will soon be swept away on the tide of history. He compares them to an omnipotent God who created all things in heaven and earth. But the psalmist points to more than God's boundless power He reminds us of the Lord's heart for the weak and the weary. And in doing so, he paints a picture of the implications of God's justice. Blessed is he who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord set the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves righteousness. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Now, those who are in Christ absolutely should read these words as a description of what Christ's atoning work has accomplished on our behalf. Jesus set us free from the bondage of sin. He opened our eyes to the truth of his word. He lifts us up when we were dead in our trespasses, and he fitted us to stand in his righteousness before the God of justice. Praise the Lord, O my soul. But not only is the gospel to shape our thinking, there are practical implications as well. The gospel not only renews our minds, but it informs our conduct. In Philippians, Paul encourages believers to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. So one of the ways the gospel must function is by informing specific behaviors. The gospel is the basis of fleeing sin because we're bought with a price. The gospel is the motivation and model for forgiveness. 
The gospel should connect to every area of life, and we find those gospel implications embedded throughout Scripture. The gospel informs us how to live a life of justice before God. In Matthew 22, Jesus summarizes the law when he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Similarly, when asking what the Lord requires of his servant, the Old Testament prophet Micah responded, He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. To do justice and to love mercy is at the heart of the gospel because it is the heart of how God has related to us. One commentator put it this way, Mercy is motivation that flows from our heart, and justice is how we are to carry out that mercy. The word mishpat is a Hebrew word for justice, and it occurs in various forms more than 200 times in the Old Testament. Its most basic meaning is to treat people equitably, to uphold the cause, to apply righteousness. It means acquitting or punishing every person based on the merits of the case, regardless of race or social status. It's an idea written into our laws today, and it's why in images dating back to ancient Greece, when we see the personification of justice, she's wearing a blindfold to express neutrality. But mishpat means more than just punishment of wrongdoing. It also means giving people their due, and it can be expressed as a negative, to stop wrongdoing, and as a positive, to give the oppressed and the vulnerable their due, rather than ignoring them. When Job hears accusations of unrighteousness from his friends, he defends himself with evidence of a godly life. Here's what he says. When the ear heard, it called me blessed, and when the eye saw it, It approved because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. And I love this description. I broke the fangs of unrighteousness and made him drop his prey from his teeth. That's the God of justice. In Psalm 146, we see, Blessed is he who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoner free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners, and he upholds the widow and the fatherless. Let's be clear. The poor, the orphans, the widows, and the immigrants don't hold a special place in God's economy of justice because they're somehow more righteous. Leviticus 19.15 shows us that, where it says, You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. 
We see here that mercy can stand in opposition to justice in the same way as any other type of favoritism can. The cross alone is the only ground on which mercy, the mercy of God, can stand. And in every case, as Christ followers, we are to strive for his standards of justice. And yet, Scripture repeatedly shows God intervening on behalf of the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant, because he abhors the mistreatment of all who are created in his image. Because he is justice, he defends the defenseless. In contrast, in our culture, we find three responses to calls for justice, which often impact our thinking. First, some don't care about justice at all. They're comfortable with their lives. I'd rather just ignore it. Second, we find those who prize the rule of law above all else. And third, we find those who elevate the fight against racism, injustice, poverty, hunger, to above everything else. If we dismiss the first category, we find those in the latter two often reveal themselves to be condemning, self-righteous, and harsh. I'm on the side of justice, one side cries out, while the other replies, well, I'll be on the right side of history. Christians instead look at the cross. God could not set aside justice. You and I know we were perpetrators of injustice against God. We have not treated God as he deserves, and we have not given him his due. Instead, we act as if we belong to ourselves. And because we've been shown grace, justice should be especially important to Christians. But we must be humble and merciful in our pronouncements because of the cross. As a result, we should love the Lord our God with all our hearts, souls, and minds, and our neighbors as ourselves. Pastor John Piper provides some insight here. He makes a couple of statements. The first one is this. Christians care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. Caring about suffering doesn't diminish caring about eternal suffering. Jesus is our model. He had compassion for the poor, the widow, the immigrant, the sick, the lame, and the blind. By example, he taught us to love our neighbors. The second part of that statement, Christians especially care about eternal suffering, calls out unbelief regarding final judgment. Here's what Jesus had to say about that. And he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. While Jesus didn't come to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God during his first incarnation, he repeatedly taught 
that day most assuredly will arrive when he returns to execute God's perfect justice. Piper makes a separate yet similar statement. Christians care about all injustice, especially injustice against God, and that statement is equally convicting. Christians care about all injustice calls out believers who, either through self-indulgence or fear, have dulled the capacity of their hearts to care about the injustices of the world. They're either too comfortable in their lives, he says, or too frightened of being labeled. That Christians care about injustice against God then calls out the practical unbelief of Christians for whom injustices against people ignite more passion than the injustices against God do. Listen, if injustice is treating others worse than they deserve, then it follows that the greater the distance be how a between how a person deserves to be treated and how that person is treated, the greater the injustice. The Apostle Paul tells us we've exchanged the glory of God for the glory of human beings, and that has profound implications. Again, Piper adds clarity. He writes, Every human is guilty of injustice that is infinitely worse than all the injustices against man put together. God is infinitely deserving of human worship, trust, and obedience. Therefore, treating God as unworthy of our total allegiance makes every person guilty of infinite justice against God. Did you catch that? Treating God as unworthy of our total allegiance makes every person guilty of infinite injustice against God. We live in a sin-soaked, fallen world whose fraying culture cries out for justice. And those calls are not new. In my 62 years living in Florida, I've seen those injustices up close. I remember being terrified watching TV and seeing Miami race riots moving closer and closer to our home during the Civil Rights Movement. I've seen churches acquire separate buildings for the express purpose of segregating worship. As a teacher, I've witnessed preferential mistreatment of students based on race or economic standing. So it comes as no surprise that today our neighbors, including our Christians, brothers and sisters, are suffering under the weight of sin in the form of racism, domestic abuse, abortion, poverty, and immigration. As followers of Jesus, we cannot avert our eyes because we lift him up as our example. When I first arrived at Cross Point Coast seven years ago, Pastor Jeremiah often spoke of something called redemptive listening. It's a concept I hadn't really heard or considered before. He explained that redemptive listening is not the same as not talking. Okay? It means actually leaning in and absorbing what the lost are crying out for as they share their stories with us. It requires our full engagement. It means we have to set ourselves aside. It means we have to not put our overlay on the stories that we're listening to and try to, try to, to channel them through our own personal experiences. The end goal is to better love your neighbor. 
And it requires the same kind of intentionality Jesus employed throughout his earthly ministry. Now, we know that Jesus was often accused with hanging out with the kinds of people his culture marginalized. Among them were the Samaritans. The Samaritans were a collection of foreigners who had intermarried with the Israelites that had remained in and around Samaria after the northern ten tribes were taken into exile by Assyria 700 years earlier. 700 years. The Jews generally regarded the Samaritans as a lesser people to be avoided whenever and wherever possible. And we read in John 4 that Jesus intentionally traveled through Samaria on his way to Galilee, stopping to rest by Jacob's well. There he encountered a woman, and defying cultural norms, he engaged her. He listened to her story. He asked questions of his own, and he shared his gospel. He acknowledged and valued the woman so much so that he spoke the truth about her sin problem. He loved her. And she, in turn, was so overcome that she ran home and told her community, pointing them to the Savior of the world. In reading various heartfelt responses from both Christians and non-Christians to George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Aubrey the past few weeks, I've experienced emotions ranging from sorrow to indignation. One of those essays in particular, written by a Christian hip-hop artist, Shai Lin, began as a response to an email from a woman he describes as a white sister in Christ who asked him how he was doing in the aftermath of the Floyd killing. His response included a description of his treatment as an African-American man living outside of Washington, D.C. that bore little, I'm going to say, that bore no resemblance to anything I've ever experienced. Alain didn't write these words from a place of bitterness, but rather from a place of what he calls grieving with hope. Because as a Christian, he places his ultimate hope in the Lord. Even, perhaps especially, in his suffering, he proclaims the God of justice and the truth of the gospel. And in doing that, his essay exposed some of the ways sin has crept into my heart has crept into my thinking. To be clear, we don't need to go somewhere outside our community to find broken people, marginalized people, people who have been discriminated against. Instead, we're called to be intentional wherever God and his wisdom has placed us. What does that look like? How do we live a life of justice before God? If we love God... We must love justice because, as we have seen this morning, God is justice. If we have any hope of understanding and working for justice, it has to begin there. An absolute passion for God, as he is revealed in Scripture, must be the primary implication for living a life of justice. If you don't love the God of justice, you can't really love justice. And if you don't love justice, how can you do justice? Second, we need to examine our hearts, our lives, our households, our relationships, 
for idolatrous ways. How have we said the love of God of justice with our lips and loved self-righteousness and partiality with our lives? How many times have I cursed my actual neighbors, like people I know? Men and women in my community, with my mouth, my mind, or heart, because of their race, ethnicity, lifestyle, or physical appearance? Have I thought, with self-righteous disdain, those people are getting what's coming to them, or they've already gotten what's coming to them? Finally, consider this. Where have I or my household or my community group seen injustice in our community? How can we pray and read the scripture together and listen so that we can take what we've seen about God and his way and apply it to the circumstances around us? I don't know what this looks like for you. I don't, I don't operate in the same exact cultural sphere that you operate in. In the sphere where God has placed you, you know where you circulate. You can be looking for opportunities. Especially now, if you know someone who's deeply hurting as a result of experiencing the specific injustices spotlighted in recent weeks, consider offering a word of compassion or prayer. Just grieving with the person. If you've seen a policy or a practice or an institution near you that intentionally or even unintentionally excludes or marginalizes others, do some investigating. And if called for, challenge the policy. Seek out others in the church and elsewhere in your community with whom you can ask hard questions of the institutions around us. Here's the thing. We long for our community to know something even greater than justice or mercy. We long for them to come, the, come to know the God of justice and mercy. And to that end, our desire should be nothing less than for the beauty of God in his good way. We've seen some of that this morning. Let that beauty of his justice continue to inform you and your households so that we might join the psalmist refrain when he sings, Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of wicked of the wicked he brings to ruin. Praise the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are justice. And as we scramble around in our lostness and our brokenness, that you, through your word, have revealed the good and true way, the good and true God. Oh, God, we thank you for your mercy and your loving kindness and your forbearance. God, we seek, as we do with many other things in life, we seek justice in ourselves. We seek justice rather than turning to you, turning inward and thinking that somehow while we chase after the lesser things around us, we can force justice to prevail. But what justice would that be? Oh God, we thank you that your justice is true and right. 
And we thank you for Jesus, that through his atoning work, you have spared us the retribution that we deserve. Lord, we ask as, as we shut off our TVs this morning and we turn our eyes and our thoughts to the cares of the day that you would intervene, that what we've heard this morning about your good way will ignite in us a passion not just to go out and do some kind of good justice for the world around us, but a passion for you and your justice, and that through that, through your way, we will then be able to engage the culture around us and point them to you. We thank you, Jesus, and all these things we pray in your precious name. Amen.